0: Awesome. That is brilliant. Uh, We we, we also have, we're going to show a Sherlock one as well, but we couldn't find it. That's how it works on television. All right. In a few minutes' time, obviously, we'll be going to a proper interview and uh, and Q&A, but I thought uh, I would probably irrelevantly uh, fill you in on who I am for those of you who don't know. Um, And I like to think there's a number of you. Uh, I am Fig Moffat, I, uh, I write uh, uh, Sherlock and Doctor Who. I, I think a really important thing to say is I'm, I'm always getting called showrunner, I'm always getting called uh, executive producer, I'm always getting told, getting called get out, but I'm not, um, the, the word, the word is writer. That's the thing I value the most, that's what I want to be called. I want to be called writer, because being the writer Of a TV show is awesome. It is utterly amazing. Because unlike anybody else, you make it up. You actually make it up. Now, all those other people's with, you know, their other jobs, golly, Um, those are important too. But when it comes right down to it, there's one person, or maybe one group of people, who write it all down. And that is brilliant. That is amazing. It's sort of, when you're a writer, it's like you're the one who's done all the homework and everybody else copies it. (laughs) And then they take all the credit for it. I love it when film directors say, My inspiration for this movie was, uh, and they give some incident from their childhood or some artistic vision they've had. Honestly, have you met a director? Never had. But what they never say is that my main inspiration was 120 pages of typescript that was a detailed description of the end result. (laughs) Tiny bit of an inspiration, that. Most folk don't get that. When they go into work in the morning, oh, there is exactly what you're supposed to do. I mean, a director in that situation is essentially somebody who took a flat pack home from Ikea and assembled it from the instructions and thought they'd cut down a fucking tree. Right? (laughs) We make it up. Now, you may say that we are a bunch of shabby, poorly dressed scabs with abominable social skills, and you'd be right. (laughs) But the best thing, the single best thing, for those of you who are ever contemplating anything like this, the single best thing about being a writer is you make it up. The other thing that I wanted to say today, because I was, you know, you you sort of feel an obligation when you get old and fat to impart (coughs) advice to people who don't need it. And if, if there ever was a bunch of people who don't need it, it's you. You've already got to Oxford University. Uh, You're smarter than I am and younger than I am. Um, I couldn't do what you do. Uh, So I've got nothing to tell you except I think one fairly useful idea, which is, and I haven't admitted this to many people, though some people know about it, and it may be a first for you is that I, and my wife will confirm this, am rubbish. I have been rubbish from a very early age. I, this is true. I, I first realized the word was rubbish overhearing my wife talking about me on the phone.
1: <laughs>
0: and it went like this. It was. I was working in Car. I was going to go to Cardiff, and she was saying, "No, don't give the lens to Stephen to take it back on the train. Well, because he'll lose it. No, I know he'll lose it. What do you mean? Because he's rubbish. (laughs) He is just rubbish. I was indignant. I took the lens. I lost the lens. (laughs) Not a word of a lie." The thing about being rubbish it has many disadvantages, which are not catered for in the real world. There are no special parking spaces for us. There should be very, very wide ones uh, with no other cars made of rubber that you can't die in. That, something like that. Okay, best, best, best thing I ever did. This will become relevant in a minute, but in terms of being rubbish uh, was my, my wife being pregnant uh, insisted that I learn to drive so that I could drive her to the hospital. So I did. She was having contractions, which I, partly, is quite difficult. And I was driving, which is awesomely hard if you're rubbish. And I was, and as she was, you know, screaming in pain in the passenger seat, like that. I couldn't, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't manage the reverse parking in the car park. I couldn't do it. I mean, in fairness to me, I had, you know, rah, all the time, which is really putting me off. I'm trying to park, darling. I'm trying to create human life. Oh, shut up. So eventually, in a moment of majestic humiliation, she said, get out of the car. I said, no, I cannot. No, just, I'll do it. So a bunch of men who were not rubbish with their new babies and their wives witnessed me getting out of the car, going behind it, and Sue getting into the car like this. Ra! Ra!" Sitting down and reverse parking <laughs> while I stood there going... Mm, mm, like that. And people staring at me. That is pretty rubbish. Okay, the relevance to this is you can't control how rubbish you are. And trust me, I mean, I, you know when people ask me for directions in the street, I honestly wish I had a badge saying, just don't bother, honestly. I, even though I live here, I'm too rubbish to tell you anything. Isn't it obvious? Um, you can't control that. You can't control how tall you are you can't control how lovely you are, you can't control how lucky you are, but you can control uh, how hard you work. And if there's one thing I think I'm pretty good at, is I actually work very hard at what I do. Uh, I have to. I've always known I'd have to, because I'm compensating for being rubbish. That is the one thing I try ever to tell my children, both of whom are far brighter than me, not a stretch, uh, that that, that it is useful to be. You guys, you're all, you're all super smart, I can tell from your faces. You're also the best looking generation the human race has yet produced, look at you. We didn't used to look like this, did we darling? People didn't used to look like that. You're all amazing, you're going to do fantastically. But honestly, the best thing about working hard is it's like cheating. If you sneak home and work harder than other people, you can get ahead and then you can lie about how much work you do. <laughs> Never think of yourself as having to swap more or or learn more, just think, I'm totally going to get ahead of other people. Friendship is, after all, a competition, and you know you've won when they hate you. (laughs) Life lessons. Isn't it marvellous? That's about it for me saying something useful to you. I'm now going to do something much more useful, which is be asked questions by somebody who wants to know things, and me going, blimey, I... I haven't a clue. (laughs) I shall see you in a moment.
1: (laughs) So, both the Doctor and Sherlock are the opposite of the kind of rubbish that you describe. Are they constructed in opposition to your own character?
0: Um, What, you mean the, the characters of the Doctor and Sherlock Holmes? Well, yes. Well yes i mean that's what that's what that kind of fiction does it uh it presents somebody who's amazing uh and simulating that when you know it, it, one of the great challenges of writing both shows is that uh you know I'm a man with a very ordinary mind trying to write uh the the mind of uh somebody who's got an exceptional mind so that so that is that is it's very different, but it's a fantasy People talk about drama being a mirror held up to life, and I keep wondering if that's what they think. Doctor Who is, <laughs> can I come round their house? Because that's amazing. Um, so, yeah,
1: I guess. But do you ever find yourself so immersed in this fantasy and that all you're doing all day is writing into it and creating it that you find yourself believing it's real?
0: No, not really, because you are, you are very much making it up. I mean, it's, it, I mean, people ask me if I find the weeping angels scary and I don't because I made them up. You know, that's a, that's a tremendous advantage. Uh, if, if it were a horror movie this I'd be their creator, which now that I think on of it means they turn against me at the end Actually, maybe I am scared of the weeping angels. I don't know. I've changed my mind on that Yeah, so on that point of
1: fear a lot of people in my parents generation They weren't like that shout out there talk about Doctor Who being a cause of them hiding behind the sofa yes. That's the quote that we always get uh, But presumably when you're writing you're trying to do more than just scare So
0: what is it exactly that you're trying to evoke in your audiences and how do you go about achieving it? Um, well with With Doctor Who, it's a sort of, you're trying to entertain by any and every means possible. That means you can be funny, you can be romantic, you can be epic, you can be heroic. And fear is one thing that Doctor Who does rather well. It's a family-friendly fear. It's not fear that will genuinely harrow the soul forever. I mean, I wouldn't want to do that. It is fear appropriate, frankly, to to an eight-year-old. Which is about the level of horror movie I can personally cope with, so I don't find that, I don't find that difficult to do. But it's just it's, it's one. I mean, you, there can't ever be a dull moment. I, is is you know, possibly we failed and maybe maybe there have been dull moments, but we try never to have a dull moment in Doctor Who. It's uh, every scene must cliffhanger out. Uh, everything must be sort of dynamic and exciting and never let you switch off. I, I mean, the thing I'm always very keen on saying to. Uh, writers on, uh, uh, on Doctor Who, I, don't, I think the same on Sherlock, which is, you've got your pre-titles, you're about three or four minutes from the title sequence that everybody knows and has seen before, you've got to imagine somebody is going to the pub, and they've already got their jacket on, and they're on a promise, there's someone there they're definitely going to have sex with. Can you lure them back to the sofa? and away from the possibility of life and happiness and joy just to see what's happening this week in Doctor Who. And you're heading towards this big roadblock called the title sequence where they might just make the rational choice to embrace life in all its diversity. But you want to say, no, I've got to find out what that slug man is doing. And you try and keep them there. And you try you just keep. You just keep saying, how can I get them back in the room? If their attention's wavering, what do we do to get their attention back on the television? Otherwise, they might develop lives and friends, and there, when will we be then? it will (laughs) be thing we've got to pigs and whistles.
1: So so how do you tread that sort of very fine line between sustained entertainment um, and drama and overload? Um, Is that something that's
0: difficult Um, to do? Well, do you know what? If people reel away from a television uh, show saying, Overloaded. I'm overloaded. That's okay, isn't it? I'd watch something that overloaded me. I wouldn't want people to go away saying, "God, that was boring." There was nothing but really, really long establishing shots and people in posh frocks having conversations about things they already both know, which defines a distressing amount of television. Um, I, I want it. To, I mean, overload sounds okay to me. You know, uh, I know. I, I know this can probably grate with some of our older members of the audience, but I always say, I'm always saying in the edit, cut it like a trailer. It was really exciting in the trailer, make it like the trailer, get the hell on with it. Uh, we're dealing uh, quite seriously, and I'm not just saying that's random flattery. I, I, I do think the human race is getting cleverer generation by generation. Uh, the younger members of our audience are you know they're wolfing down that plot. They know where it's going, and they're texting their friends, texting, or they're tweeting their friends, or they're Instagramming, or any of those modern things, and playing a computer game at the same time. Um, you know uh, it's difficult to overload uh, minds like that.
1: Yeah, and talking about generational gaps, do you feel a strong affinity with the older Doctor Who episodes, the 70s and 80s kinds, or, or do you feel that it's gone in a totally different direction with different no, audiences? No, it's, a to-
0: it's a totally the same thing, Doctor Who, as, it, as, as it's ever been. Um, oh, it's completely the same. The, the thing about Doctor Who, if you watch the original run of the series, as I have obsessively millions of times, it always adapts itself to the current television landscape very, very quickly. Uh, that was what, that's why it's a survivor. You know, the moment that, you know, uh, if, you know, costume superheroes are in, suddenly the Doctor's got a cape. You know, it always, it always adapts perfectly and impeccably to the modern world. But Doctor Who always, always sits in exactly the same place as, as it was devised to the very first time. It came out of a focus group with people sitting around saying, what we need is a show to take us from children's television to adult television. We need." An adventure serial that appeals equally to children and adults—it must be the bridge. That's still what that show is. So I don't think old Doctor Who and new Doctor Who have got any—I mean, have got any real significant differences in approach at all, except in so far as it as it always varies uh, in terms of, in terms of the predominant television culture. So, talking about that bridge between
1: children and adults, I think Mm. there are very few films and TV shows that are able to do that. Pixar do it very well, and Mm. Doctor Who does it well. What's the secret ingredient to get parents and children on the sofa together?
0: I think we... I mean, well, first of all, probably... Probably the thing that gets everyone on the sofa together is probably a children's show, because everybody likes children's stuff. I mean, Star Wars is children's, you know? I mean, it's... You know, that's the thing that you never grow out of. It's like... It's like when you go to a really posh restaurant and you look longingly at the children's menu because it's got all the really good stuff on it. That's Doctor Who right there. You know, it's egg and chips. Whoa, great. Uh, so, uh, so you, uh, but, but you need to make a children's program that children think is really for adults. And, and, and adults think is really for children, but they love. You know, it has to be, you know, demanding and challenging. There's nothing about doing a children's program that means it's dumb or silly. Sometimes you have to be. It has to be. It has to have big emotions because children understand emotions, um, and are very moved by them. You have to, be, and you have to be ringingly clear. And I think I think that's I think that's terribly important. To write for children is just to write better, and everyone likes things that are better written. So I mean, the thing that's. I mean, if you read Roald Dahl's books, you know his children's books, they're amazingly well written, in the simplest language. He restricts himself to quite a small vocabulary because of the audience he's addressing. But they are beautiful to read. Now, I do not mean by that, by the way, if anyone is twitching in rage at the moment, the Doctor Who is a children's programme. It's sort of an adult's programme too. We all know that. But it belongs, it belongs to a genre uh, and has a style that feels... Very appropriate to stickers on a lunchbox, doesn't it?
1: So, so do you think a program like Torchwood didn't quite get the traction it maybe could have had because it sort of was in within this genre, but failed to appeal to a very you know important demographic within that
0: genre? Like I, think I think if Russell were here, he might he might be inclined to say didn't get traction for series. <laughs> I mean, uh, one of them co-produced in America, and they would have gone uh, for more Torchwoods if. Uh, if Russell had agreed to do it, to right. be honest. That's so, what
1: I'm getting at. I mean, it was very good when it was on our screens, but
0: ultimately yeah. it's no longer there. And I suppose it was why. Well, I mean, most things don't last forever. Doctor most, Who does. Doctor Who yeah. l- lasts forever because it can always become a brand new show. So, you know, Torchwood did fine, did absolutely fine. Uh, if you're meaning, did it seem to exclude kids a bit? Yeah, um, yeah but they did, they did the re edit, so, uh, uh, you know, the, the, ch- the child friendly version of it. Which, uh, which was always, in my view, and I know some of their views too, always slightly better. You know, you don't, I, don't, I don't think you can have underground bases and swear words in the same show, it's a problem. But, um, uh, no, I mean, the Torchwood did really well, did really well. But it's, it's, it's not Doctor Who, nothing's Doctor Who. Um, so to move into Sherlock a little bit, one thing that Sherlock and the Doctor
1: have in common or indeed Doctor Who, is that they're both old stories which mm. you've sort of written new life into. Yeah. Do you take a particular joy in taking old narratives and reincarnating them, or, shall I say, regenerating them? Uh,
0: <laughs> no. Uh, I, know, I know it seems as though I do, but, uh, because the, the things I'm working on are that. Uh, but I, I, don't, I don't. I'm not really excavating for other old things that I used to love. Um, it just so happened that Doctor Who and Sherlock Holmes were my two favourite things in the whole world. I loved them, so to get a a chance to work in them was was glorious, Um, was brilliant, yeah. And to put you in a bit of a difficult position then, um, if we're struck
1: by a crisis due to some alien or criminal evil, who do you put your money on to save us? Is it the Doctor or is it Sherlock?
0: Well, de- well depending, on, uh, depending on the nature of the
1: <laughs> adversary. Let's say it's um, an axis of criminal activity and bizarre futuristic alien malice. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I div- did divide it up.
1: Um, <laughs> you can only pick one. I can only pick... Yep. I
0: suppose in the end the Doctor is, uh, because he's, an, he's a super powerful alien, and can regenerate. I mean, it, you know, if you shoot Sherlock dead, uh, he, he doesn't actually turn into the next Sherlock Holmes, you know. So I suppose, I suppose if, if that slightly improbable event were to occur in the real world, and I were asked to choose, again improbably, between two fictional heroes to save the world, uh, I might be forced to conclude that it might have to be the Doctor. But, you know, Superman would be pretty good, too, because he can fly. And he's got extra... I mean, I, I I, could I could be just making up my own team of people with my action figures, couldn't I? That'd be great.
1: Yeah, that'd be good. You should write an episode about <laughs> okay. that. I don't <laughs> do anything else. Yeah. Okay, I think we're going to turn to the audience now, because I yes. know some people are itching to ask questions. So if we go to the women the front bench there. Uh,
0: thank you very much uh, for coming here tonight. I, I wanted to ask two questions. Uh, first, uh, I. Uh, when you say you did your homework, can I ask, what kind of homework is it, uh, reading Shakespeare or, or reading the contemporary scripts and plays? And uh, uh, the second, how do you test your scripts and do actors have an input in it? So how do you test if they're f- uh, uh, funny, for example? Um, I've tended, in terms of actually learning how to write a, a modern screenplay, I, I, I think it's more useful to read modern screenplays, I do. I think that. I mean, uh, I, I think there's very little that you can't learn about screenwriting from uh, reading William Goldman's screenplays. He's he's the master of the form. He's absolutely brilliant. Um, and the second question was about how do I test the scripts by getting people to read them. I mean, there's a sort of uh, insane belief that people come out with now and then saying that screen, it's okay for screenplays to be boring to read. No, it isn't. They have to be incredibly exciting to read. Good screenplays are great to read. Sometimes in depressing occasions, they are better than the movie that resulted from them. So they're dynamic and brilliant. If, if uh, when, when Sue is reading a script for the first time, especially if it's a comedy, she will always tick the laugh, tick where she laughed, her, and otherwise mark things that interested her the first time or, uh, or amused her, because she will never have that moment again. The script will become an old document, and you get used to the jokes. Um, so the, 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 you test it by seeing if it works as a piece of reading. There's nothing. I mean, screenplays are great, to, are great fun to read if they're good. So you test it that way, and you know you ask questions like, "Did you understand that?" And people say no, uh, and or you stand over them and say, "You haven't laughed yet. What's wrong with you? Are you depressed?" Um, and do the actors have input? Sometimes, yeah. I mean, sure. Anyone can anyone can give a note. Um, Anyone can have a, a, an opinion. I mean, you, it's, it's usually... It seems like a, a vast number of people from the outside, but most TV shows can fit, consist of a, a small number of people talking endlessly about a project. So, yeah, sure. Just to pick up on something you said there, that the, the written
1: screenplay can actually sometimes be more entertaining than the mm-hmm. visual. Um, and J.K. Rowling has just released a script of her play, yeah. I imagine, for a similar reason. Would, would you ever consider compiling all the episodes you've written into a book, and do you think that that would get traction?
0: I don't, I mean, they did it uh, the first year, uh, uh, the first year when Doctor Who came back, uh, they released the script book of all the scripts, and it didn't sell very well, that's the truth, it didn't sell very well, maybe we should try it again, I don't know if people would, uh, would want that again, but um, it's sometimes difficult to know exactly what version of the script you, you would go with. I always think you should, it should be the shooting script, Rather than, than what is in effect a transcription of the finished version, but there's problems with that. Uh, so I don't know. Uh, I don't know. They, they haven't sold well. The history is not good on them. We could do some market research.
1: Who, who would buy a script book of, of the what, what was it that you described? The, the screenplay or the, the screenplays of, the, yeah.
0: of, of of things. Yeah, well, I think that's a go ahead. Yeah, an entirely <laughs> typical group of people. Yeah. what a random sample. <laughs> the most literate bunch of people in the world.
1: <laughs> OK, let's, let's take another question. Uh, let's go to the gentleman on the back row there.
0: Um, Stephen, you spoke at the start about feeling that you're a bit rubbish in life. And it's obviously an opinion you've held for quite a long time because uh, in coupling, Steve and Susan are based, if I remember correctly, on yourself and Sue. You know, we didn't hide that very well, did we? No. <laughs> and... Um, Steve is quite regularly said as being, why is he so utterly useless? Yeah. But coupling ends on that really quite beautiful cliffhanger of Steve saying he became someone else entirely. Does that mean that when you left the hospital with your firstborn, you could park the car? Did did, did you change, or is it uh... <laughs> someone else entirely? Also rubbish. Uh, no, I, I've never really mastered being able to drive at all. I'm hopeless at it. Um, I'm just worried I'm going to kill people, principally me. Uh, so I, I don't really, no I didn't go out and become a superman, I, came, I, I, I became a, I, and many men have spoken about that moment, I became a dad, and that's a great thing to be, and dad's a great thing to be, that's who you are, you suddenly realise you're just a dad and that's awesome, uh, so that's, that's what you become, I mean by someone else entirely, I wish, I wish it gave you superpowers but uh, it doesn't. People always tell you that you're, you're going to have all sorts of insight and wisdom about your children that will just come naturally. The doesn't. <laughs> what they tell to, to, to young women having children about the natural maternal instincts that will arise is our greatest load of shite ever. And it makes every woman with a young baby feel inadequate, thinking, I'm the only one who can't tell which, which baby's cry is mine. None of them can tell. It's really, really difficult. But you do become someone else because uh, your your life becomes emotionally centered, even more at home. You're already married, so you're already you're already part of that world. But suddenly, you, you think you've got no more love to give, and you and you find that you have. So that's how you become. Uh, but no superpowers or, or reverse parking skills. I'm Let's
1: take another question, please. Someone on the front bench over there, with, holding a pencil, I think, or a yeah. wand, maybe, or a sonic screwdriver. Okay. I don't know if I tell. <laughs> Um, hi, um, my name is Gianna Justice, um, and I have a question. When you're working with two distinct worlds in scripts, how do you kind of avoid a slippage um, in voices? Like, how do you keep the worlds separate when you're writing? Um, and and kind of an addendum to that question is: Have you ever had an idea um, for Doctor Who that's worked better in Sherlock?
0: Um, it doesn't. It, it doesn't feel to me terribly difficult to keep them separate. The the thing that's oddly enough more difficult is what Mark and I talk about a lot is is if something comes up in Sherlock or in Doctor Who that seems a bit like the other show, we've got to behave as if we don't work on both. We've got to behave as if it's the right idea. If someone else were if if Sherlock and Doctor Who were made by different people. Uh, they would find moments where those shows resembled each other or, or had, had certain things in common you can't just, you can 't then say we mustn 't do that there 's some strange law it doesn 't matter that the same people work on them so you, you just allow it to happen famously uh, when, they, when they were sorting out the character of the Doctor and Doctor Who, one of the things that uh, I think Sidney Newman said is making more like Sherlock Holmes. so there are elements of Sherlock Holmes in the doctor, and we, we can 't shy away from those at all and there are you know You know, he's a sort of space Sherlock Holmes the Doctor in a way, isn't he? So, you've got to allow it to happen. It's okay to do that. And what was the other question? Have I ever found, swapped things around? Um, Do you know, there's a mythical thing about the the bottom drawer, where you put lots of ideas that fell out of scripts, and you might use them again later. Oh, I can't think I've ever done it. Usually, a line or an idea falls out of a script for one very good reason. It's not very good and you haven't admitted that to yourself. You know, it's like all those boxes of stuff you've got in your attic that you should have thrown away, but you pretend to yourself that you need to keep and you never, ever take out the box. That's what the bottom drawer is, stuff that you should never use.
1: Thank you. Pleasure.
0: Let's go right to the back over there
1: with glasses. Yeah, you're turning around. Yep, you. Peter Peter Capaldi once said in an interview that he wanted to an episode of Doctor Who made where
0: the genesis of the Cybermen were shown. Could you see that happening in the future? Could I see that happening in the future? Well, I'm not going to tell you, am I? <laughs> because I don't tell people what's going to happen in the future in Doctor Who. Um, anything is possible, um, uh, and loads of ideas. I mean that idea has uh, uh, wandered around the Doctor Who production office for many years, it's, and no one's including myself, has ever particularly cracked it. Whether we will in the future is another story, but it's not, it's not one we're unaware of. You know. it, it, um, they sort of did it. The trouble is, is how do you, uh, in, uh, in David Tennant's uh, first season, they did uh, Rise of the Cybermen, which was a sort of alternate universe version of the, uh, of the beginning of the Cybermen. So it'd be hard to pick your way around that. But wait and see, who knows what'll happen, because I, I, generally speaking, lie, and if I had a secret plan, it would remain secret, because I kept it secret.
1: <laughs> so, you mentioned the Cybermen, I want to ask you briefly about Daleks, because I think one thing that people never think about is that a Dalek is a, essentially a glorified traffic cone with pimples and a mm.
0: plunger. How on earth did that become scary? What did they do to make Daleks so scary? I don't, I don't know, I can't take any credit for it. I wasn't, I, I was about one year old at the time when they did that, um, and they didn't phone my house a lot. But I mean, it's, 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 they are rather beautiful things. It's hard for me to look at Daleks. Uh, they're so wired into my brain. But people who've never seen Daleks uh, from other countries will stare at them in fascination. There is something very good about that and very satisfying about that design. Um, they're a good idea. You know, the, a, a tank with anger problems. That is, that's an awesome idea, isn't it? And that's brilliant. Terry Nation just came up with that one day. That's a brilliant idea. That voice is amazing. But also, just the idea that they're so emotional and screechy and panicky and horrible, and yet they're sort of robots. That's fascinating. And the very minimalist animation they have is very, very cool. People just love those things. They are still, by far, Doctor Who's most, uh, most popular monster. And... I I think they're the best monsters ever, in anything. And yes, they are kind of you know a bit of sixties pop art and casters, but you can't you you can't improve on them.
1: And are you in favour of the levitating Dalek? Because I remember that being a topic of controversy
0: when I was it. I mean, but they've always levitated. People who understand their Doctor Who properly, like I do, uh, have (laughs) known that Daleks uh, always could do that. They've been doing that for years. Generally speaking, they'd cut away in the old show when they did it. and there's a Sylvester McCoy episode where the, where the terrifying cliffhanger was a Dalek going up the stairs. And I remember th- it was a wonderful cliffhanger, but I remember just thinking, brilliant. This is the only show in the world where the evil monster demonstrates its satanic power by ascending a staircase. <laughs> oh, you're in trouble now, Doctor. <laughs> Great, let's have another question, please.
1: There's a woman right at the back in glasses and a white jumper. Yep. Hi. Um, if you stopped writing today, and please don't, but if you did, you'd probably go down as the guy who regenerated Doctor Who and Sherlock Holmes. Um, so, how do you follow that? Is how there another I genre you'd like to get your hands on?
0: Oh, how do, how do I follow doing Sherlock and Doctor mm-hmm. Who? Spiral of regret and despair. <laughs> Random acts of violence. Uh, Big article in the Times about how television has lost its way and my phone number. Uh, Lots of pub conversations about how, you know, back in the day I could get commissioned all the time. Ah, that was the golden age and all that. That, That's that's generally what I'm speaking. I'll turn up in an interview somewhere saying, I think this new show that I'm doing is the most interesting work I've ever done. And you'll read the interview and look at my slightly desperate face in in the photograph and think, Oh dear, I'm not watching that. That's generally speaking what people do after major successes. Uh, and I think I'd be good at all that. Um, I keep saying those things, by the way, I'm, I'm always saying that, but it's partly to make a note to myself not to behave like a dickhead when this is over. I know, I know I've peaked. I know I can't top doing Doctor Who and Sherlock at the same time. I know that's am- it's amazing, an amazing, astonishing privilege to have been there and have been so lucky to get to do those two shows, those two beautiful shows at the same time, I know I'm the most epically lucky person ever. I will not tarnish the memory of such great days with regret that they are over. I will be happy that they happened to me. Of all people, stupid rubbish me, I got to do that. So I hope I'll do lots of lovely things, and I, uh, I and I will, I will, I will know what I always used to wonder about. I remember looking at a writer, a very successful writer, I, I knew quite well, just looking at him and thinking, I wonder what it's like to be him, what it's like to have a huge success. Well, now I know. Now I know. But there are other kinds of writing to do, and I, I will try and not be an idiot about it. <laughs> so You joked about
1: television losing its way, um, and I want to bring you on something slightly separate from Doctor Who and Sherlock. and want to talk to Is people. there such a thing? Um, Rumour has it. Um, no. The BBC, do you fear for the BBC's future? Um, whether that's due to shows leaving to other channels like Bake Off, shows being axed like Top Gear due to a lack of government funding. Is the BBC in 20, 30 years' time going to have the means or the prestige that it does now?
0: Well, I hope it does. I mean, I'm not, I'm not an industry expert. I hope it remains the powerhouse it is because there isn't anything else like it. There isn't anything else like it. And it would be an absolute tragedy to lose that. That doesn't mean the BBC isn't infuriating to deal with. It absolutely is. And as Mark always says, you love the BBC. You do not expect the BBC to love you back. <laughs> and, that's a, and that's a wise and sensible thing to say. I, I, there is no other substitute for it. it. If it goes away, if that light goes, goes out, there, we don't know how to, to turn it back on again. So that would be awful. I think Russell did the thing of, you know, Pick, pick HBO, pick anything you like, compare their output to what the BBC does. If we lose that, we lose it forever. It doesn't ever come back. The improbable circumstances that led to it happening in the first place will not be recreated. So I hope it remains very, very much. It will always be under threat from the, the sitting government because they don't like being criticized. Who does, frankly? If you gave me command of all television critics in the world, I'd have them executed the end of the same day. So asking the, you know, the government to be nice about the BBC is a bit difficult. But um, oh, if we lost it, that would be a dire thing. I, I hope it will be fine.
1: But, uh, alongside the government um, you know, being opposed to its criticism, do you think there are executive decisions which jeopardize its, its success?
0: Yeah. Well, th- there can be. There, generally speaking, oh, people, uh, people make mistakes, people take things in wrong directions, that does happen. Uh, I wouldn't class myself, I mean, you know, uh, uh, Sue Virtue, my wife, would answer this question probably better than I can. Uh, I'm, I'm not at the sharp end of that kind of thing. I make my shows, and I wouldn't, I, I, I'm hesitant to uh, style myself an industry expert, because I'm not, um, but I can tell you exactly which version of the Dalek appeared in which show. Um, so, I don't. Uh, I, 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 you, not everything that happens is right. Uh, there, are, there are mistakes, but um, in general, the BBC is an unequivocal good. It is an unequivocal good in the world. That doesn't mean everything it ever does is good, it doesn't mean it doesn't make mistakes, but it is an unequivocal good. And if we lose it, we never, ever get it back.
1: Okay, strong words. Let's go back to Daleks. Uh, let's have another question over here. There's a hand in a stripy jumper. Second row, yep.
0: Hello. Hello. <laughs> Mr. Muffet. Uh Of course you're leaving Doctor Who next year, so I was wondering if you could tell us what we might be able to expect from series 10 of Doctor Who. I mean, I assume you're not going to give us any spoilers, but just generally. You're asking me to tell you what's going to happen in series 10 without spoilers. (laughs) Well, (laughs) the Doctor will reliably save the day. There will be evil that will be defeated. There will be big speeches. There will be an epic amount of urgent standing. And you will fall in love with Pearl Mackey as Bill Potts. That's, that's my prediction. Oh, carrying on from this. <laughs> once, you're, uh, once you've left as execu- executive producer, can you see yourself coming back to write episodes? I mean, Russell T Davies didn't, but... Uh, I know the bugger. Um, I, uh, I think, uh, much as I, I, I hate to concede that Russell may have been right uh, not to write for me, I think this is probably it for me. I think once I'm done, I'm done. Uh, you can't ever, I, I can't predict. I'm very near, I go so close to getting Russell back. So close. We had big, we had storylines and everything. And it was just, it was workload that stopped it in the end. Um, I don't think so. I've written a hell of a lot of Doctor Who. I've written more Doctor Who than I've written of anything else. I've written more Doctor Who than anyone else has ever written. Um, that's, it feels as though it, with my limited time on this earth, I should maybe start focusing on something else. Um, it, it, it's not a, a loss of love for the show at all. I, 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 it, it's extraordinary the extent to which I still love it completely. But I think it's time, to, it's time for Doctor Who to have something new, and it's time for me to have something new, I think. So Probably, probably not, but then, you know... Chris will pull me up and say, yes, but you can bring back the bandrolls, And I'll think, oh, oh that's the bandrolls. I'll bring those back tomorrow, Chris. So probably not, though. Thanks. Um, so
1: to talk about writing very quickly, um, do you sit down and think, right, I'm going to write an episode today, and then it comes to you? Or is it more erratic? Are you in bed at night and think, oh my gosh, what a great idea. Get up, pen on paper. Um, or is it somewhere in between? Um,
0: well, the reality of my life uh, is that you can't wait for inspiration, which is, what I, and I, I'm not sure anyone should ever wait wait for inspiration. It's a job. Get off your arse and do it, or in the case of a writer, get on your arse and do it. Um, so, yeah, you you you, you just you, you decide to get on with it. I mean, in ter- I mean, uh, I've always been fascinated by the idea of uh, people who really need to write their ideas down. I don't have that many. I, 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 I can kind of remember them. <laughs> Uh, but sometimes sometimes I'll just I'll run through to the computer and I'll, it's usually not a big idea I have to go and write down. It's usually I've been wondering how to, to phrase a joke or something and it'll suddenly come to me while I'm watching telly or something and I'll, I'll run through and just add it onto the script. Or I'll think of a, a, a plot thing that will work. And is every episode you
1: write something that you're very proud of, or are there those episodes which are sort of stock episodes
0: um, that you're sort of writing just to fill out time? I I try to write, as does every writer on Doctor Who, and I always say it to them, I try to write every single time I write Doctor Who, I try to write the best Doctor Who there has ever been. The fact that I fail, always, doesn't change the nature of the ambition. Uh, You might change quite what kind of episode you're doing. I'm going to write the funniest Doctor Who or I'm gonna write the scariest Doctor Who. you're always trying to write the very best one. Now someone will, here will blog about some episode I've written and how awful it was and how could, how could he possibly have written something so crap uh, when, he, when, he, when he started out writing uh, meaning to write something brilliant. What you have learned there is not that I'm a fool, but that the job is horrifically difficult. It's really difficult. Some days, it's, all, it's not quite luck, but it feels like luck. All the windows align and everything seems to work and you think, this episode's a cracker. I, I slightly feel that, and maybe I shouldn't say this, but I slightly feel that about the Christmas Doctor Who. I, I think it's one of the ones where everything just seemed to click into place. The director was on brilliant form. The guest cast are astonishing. Uh, and some days, everything seems to go wrong. But never do I sit down with any intent other than to write the definingly brilliant Doctor Who of all time, and never do I do anything other than fail. But you've got to start at the top of the hill.
1: So did you not have a knack for writing from a young age?
0: Well, how would evolution have favored a knack for writing? What? What particular environment favoured that, really? The sabre-toothed tigers are coming, but fortunately he can do 25-minute pithy comedies so we're safe. It's not, uh, it it, it just doesn't work that way. No, it's a a learnable skill, it is. It is learnable. It's, It's much more difficult than people think it is. It is much more achievable than people think it is. But, my God, you have to work about 20 times harder than most of the writers I've dealt with. Well, a lot of the writers I've known over the years, I think, you're not working hard enough. Russell T. Davis works like a monster. My God, that man works. Into the pit of despair. If you've read his book, you'll realise just how tough he finds it. Every script I write, every single one, just about reduces me to tears. And I'm always saying to Sue this is the worst one, it's never ever been as bad as this. And she's saying, you say it every time. And I say, this time it's real, this time it's the worst script, I can't finish it, it's going to kill me. And do you find it lonelier than other jobs? Um, not, not especially, I live in a house full of my family, so uh, I, I, don't, I don't feel lonely. Um, I'm, not, I'm not very good, I, I used to be, uh, when I was single, I, I, I was quite, I'd quite happy to spend long you know day after day after day on my own writing away. I have to say, I'm terrible at that now. I hate, I hate not having people around now. So I don't know if it's lonely. It's lonely in the acute sense is, you are the person that's going to solve this problem. And that's another thing. I, and it's when I was saying silly things at the beginning about, you know, you write it all down for everybody else. One of the things that distinguishes a good writer from just an okay writer is, You solve the problem. Don't expect the director to solve it for you. That will not happen. You solve it on the paper and write it down.
1: Great, we've got time for a couple more questions. Um, Let's go to the hands of three from the back. Uh, I, I'm sure you've probably been asked this quite a lot, um, but uh, Blink is one of my favourite episodes, and I was just wondering where the idea for that
0: came from, and where the idea for the Weeping Angels came from. It came from a locked up graveyard in Dorset. Was that Dorset we were in? Where that hotel was we used to go with the kids. Oh yeah. Dorset, yeah. I walked past this uh, graveyard, and uh, uh, it was chained up, which is quite, a, was pretty epic site, you know, and it said unsafe structure within, and I thought, wow, I'm going to have a look at that. And I went and looked, and and I don't mean actually get close to it, I'm a coward, let's be clear, I thought I'll peer through the railings at that like a Doctor Who fan. And inside was a a weeping angel doing that, and uh, that's where I got the idea from. Uh, Several years later, uh, after Blink had gone out, I said to my son Joshua, can I show you the original weeping angel, the one that... um, I saw that made me write the story, so I took him over, unsafe structure within, tumble down graveyard, no weeping angel. <laughs> there are two possible explanations. <laughs> <laughs> One is the weeping angels are real. Uh, the other is that I, I somehow made up the, the weeping angel and it was never there. And here's the thing that I've, I, I, bothers me to this day, is I don't think I invented that. I don't think I invented the idea of an angel with its face in its hands, as if weeping. I think that pre-existed the weeping angels. But I can't find it anywhere. I can't find the record of it. And the, tr- the trouble with trying to find it uh, is if I enter into a Google <laughs> search box, <laughs> weeping angel, lamenting angel. I get nothing but pictures from shows I made. <laughs> it doesn't really help. But if anyone can ever happens across the original that I think I saw, presumably not in Dorset, uh, and put into Doctor Who, I'd love. To, I'd love to know where I where I stole that idea from. I'm convinced I did. But uh, so there, that was it. Also, a, 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 a short story. Uh, the, the, the weeping angels came from the graveyard in Dorset. Um, uh, the uh, the story, uh, the Sally Sparrow element of it, came from uh, I wrote a short story for the Doctor Who, brilliant book of Doctor Who, what I did in my Christmas holidays by Sally Sparrow. which didn't have any weeping angels in it, but had the other, the other sort of time travel element in it. So there.
1: I've a couple more questions. Just go to the gentleman in the front bench there. Talking about
0: Daleks and bringing back to that, how does a Dalek Parliament work? What do the argue about, apart from how to exterminate people? <gasps> how do they do anything? Come on! The, how does the Dalek Parliament work? Opposition? I don't know. Exterminate! Exterminate! I agree with that! So do I! I obey! I obey too! Um, I don't know. I, I like the fact that they all, they all sat there and, or stood there in their rows and thinking presumably think, well, everyone else has got a Parliament. We should have a Parliament. What do we do? <laughs> we debate things now. Um, I never quite know what goes on with the Daleks when we're not seeing them. You know, I, I, in common with most things that are truly gorgeous about Doctor Who, I'm not sure the idea makes complete sense, but he's brilliant. He's brilliant. I love the, I love the Daleks and I, I love the Dalek Parliament. <laughs> I love also, and you must have noticed this And we we do it on purpose, as I'm sure they did in the old series. Every single time the Daleks come back, they have a completely different authority structure. Dalek Emperor, Supreme Dalek, Dalek Supreme, uh, Leader Dalek, Davros. Uh, it's like every time they go home, they think, what we do now? A Prime Minister? What a pri- Let's have a Prime Minister, that'd be awesome. Yeah. Rather like the Cybermen, at the end of every military incursion, run up a new outfit. You noticed that? I think. Nah. Do you think? Do you, do you, let's get something sleeker. That's what they do when they're back home. <laughs> um, just one more question. Uh, do you want to pick? <sighs> Who looks uh, the keenest? This fellow's been asking for some time. Recently, the. Power of the Daleks
1: has been reconstructed, yeah. and obviously the Web of Fear and the Enemy of the World were returned a couple of years ago. Which story would you, if you could choose, of any of the ones that are currently missing from
0: the archives, to be restored, or by animation, or to come back, t- totally themselves? Um, which one? I don't know. I mean, I'm pro- I'm possibly Fury from the Deep. I'd quite like to see, or Evil of the Daleks. Um, I mean, I think the, uh, the animation work is wonderful, but I, I really want to see the originals is what I really want to see. Uh, but um, there is a certain poetry in some of them being missing, because it won't be too long a time before it is impossible for any one human being to have seen every single episode of Doctor Who. It may already be true that there is no single human being who's seen all of it. I quite like the mystery of that. I quite like that some of his days were erased. At the same time, I'd I'd love to see, obviously, the missing stuff very much. We try not to lose them anymore, so that's good. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, I'm
1: afraid that is all we've got time for. Please do remain seated whilst we leave the room, but firstly, join me in giving a huge thank you (laughs)